Hello and welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast series for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And I'm here today with the co-directors of the forum, Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm. And they're here to talk to us a little bit about the Pope's new encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. So uh, welcome, Mary Evelyn and John. Thank uh, you. It's good to be here. So, you know, the first thing that I think everybody always wants to know about an encyclical and needs a constant refresher is what is an encyclical? It's just a weird word in my mouth, encyclical. What's that about? <laughs> so what even is this kind of writing? Technically, an encyclical is a teaching document. Within the Catholic Church, then, the Pope has the prerogative to put forward his ideas about a particular issue and teach the community. And what's interesting, obviously, about this pope is that he has now written three encyclicals. He finished an encyclical of uh, the prior pope and then uh, has initiated uh, two and released these two of his own. So he's uh, entering into a, a teaching mode, but also it's a letter, isn't it? And he addresses it to the larger community. So that's a very interesting dimension of his encyclicals especially, don't you think? Yes, and we just wanted to say something about this encyclical and how it's shaped. Um, it's long, but there's a lot in it. There's eight chapters. And the first one begins um, with this dark cloud over our world, the problems. But the second one goes to what we might say is the promise with this incredible parable of the Good Samaritan. And he lays out all the choices and how we're part of those who neglect um, those in need. Even he's very human. Um, and the, the next chapter starts to open this up uh, a bit more because it's going to um, the envisioning and engendering an open world, okay? He's inviting us into how do we vision it and engender it? And one of the phrases in that chapter is an ethics of international relations, which is deeply needed. Um, in chapter four, he speaks about a heart open to the whole world, and he speaks about the migration problems, and he calls for global governance, uh, chapter five, he's calling for a better kind of politics that's in service of a common good. Chapter six is speaking about dialogue and friendship in society, and it's actually inviting us to kindness, even in the flurry of daily activity, whether we're in the developed or developing world. What is kindness and what is the art of encounter? Chapter seven is about paths of renewed encounter. And he speaks specifically of re reconciliation, forgiveness of peace. But he says, it's not exactly just forgiving and forgetting. We must still recall mm. the horror of the Holocaust, of Nagasaki, of Hiroshima, of other genocides, and things like lynching um, and the killing of innocent people. Mm. He, he then goes actually towards what we would say um, is continuing opening. And that is to religions are at the service of fraternity to our whole world. And there he ends with this call for interreligious dialogue. So the opening of personhood, the openings towards government, but he comes to this amazing note that he starts on, that in February of 2019, he signed a declaration with the grand imam 
of the Al-Hazar, the most important academic institution of the Islamic world um, in Abu Dhabi. And that document, uh, which was calling for peace, actually, is, is one that is the signature touchstone of this particular encyclical, that document of human fraternity for world peace and living together. So that's the touchstone of his call for all people uh, to in, envision and engender a flourishing future. In fact, isn't it the case that we have a colleague who's made a career in interreligious dialogue, and he finds this the most significant statement, certainly from this papacy, but for a long time on interreligious dialogue. Very exciting to you. Yeah. Um, that's profound. Yeah, it's an amazing message. And I'm curious how this message ties back to the title, right? Like, Fratelli Tutti, what exactly does that mean? Where's that coming from? So Fratelli Tutti is, means all brothers. <laughs> and we'd like to think of it, and the Vatican certainly claims that, but it's an inclusive sensibility, um, that it's beyond gender difference. It is the case, as a Franciscan nun pointed out, um, that that phrase in the early Italian that Francis was speaking um, was used for him to address his brothers in the order that he founded, the Franciscans. But he, Francis, was in close contact with his spiritual uh, friend and companion, Claire, who founded the Poor Clares. So there's an amazing gender balance between Francis and Claire. Um, but I, it is appropriate to say that some women, including nuns, have been somewhat offended by this language. But John has a fascinating story about a Moroccan student here at Yale. In the a student newspaper at Yale, the Yale Daily News, uh, this non-Catholic Moroccan student did a review of the encyclical. And uh, it's uh, quite uh, uh, insightful. And at one point, he juxtaposes the two critiques, the critique from the right for the Pope's uh, uh, criticism of uh, laissez-faire capitalism and how the conservatives might react against that, and from the left, a sense of gender or inclusive language. And he then says, listen, this term fratelli, as we talked of earlier, is uh, used by Francis to a much larger group and a both speaking to men and women. And also the student then says the issues in this encyclical are more important than any one or single issue critique. And we have to just pass it, get past it and get on with things. I find in the title, I'm intrigued by the term tutti mm -hmm. because I think it captures something of uh, Francis's wholeness a holistic vision. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I had my eye open for the reveal-conceal dynamics in the encyclical, and I thought the word tutti was one of these revelatory terms, universal love that Francis speaks of. And he has these poetic terms, the star of kindness, and he speaks of an opening up to the world, these expansive phrases that he uses that that come out and really have a lot of allure and attraction. They're attractors in that sense. So I felt uh, Tutti was giving us a very early signal of his uh, holistic vision. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And it fits well with the kind of interreligious scope of the message as well. You can tell this is really embracing all of humankind. 
Yeah. So this is a, as, as big of a message as you can really send out. Right. Um, and obviously part of that message, you know, as you're saying, there's this kind of uh, critique of the closed and the kind of moving toward the open. Uh, and so some of that is laissez-faire capitalism, free markets. What's going on with that? It's, I don't know, strange to hear popes talking about economics, right? Like what's, <laughs> yeah. what's going on? What uh, exactly is he criticizing there? Right. And I think this is such an important question because this encyclical and Laudato Si are addressed, as we said, to the whole human community. And that wasn't true in earlier encyclicals. It was addressed to Catholics. So this is part of that universal appeal. And I want to just say the Pope has such a sense of compassion for suffering. And that's So his critique comes out of that tremendous sense, coming out of Latin America and so on, of the vulnerable, the poor, the excluded. So his critique, as you say, is of this notion that market capitalism is going to solve all our problems, the invisible hand. And he says that simply isn't the case. And he says as well, it is a critique of the forms that we have held up of freedom, of justice, um, and, and democracy. And then he said, we've lost the sense of a social community um, and this indifference towards the common good, this self-centeredness. So this critique of of profit, consumerism, and a culture of waste, along with unemployment and racism and poverty and hunger, this is at the heart of the matter. And I think it's a powerful message to all of us. Mm. I I felt... Uh, along with the, the points that Mary Evelyn has raised, a good, really an interesting overview. I was struck by the critique of the dream. And he, uh, he speaks of a misguided dream and then a shattered dream. And he presents uh, a way towards a communitarian dream. And in, that, in those stepping stones or in that kind of pathway, I was really intrigued by his capacity to explore something that is at the heart of our human vision of ourselves, a sense of an ongoing dream or of a horizon moving into a future. And uh, his exploration of the, the capitalist dream or the American dream, to use that sense. And Mary Evelyn will often remark now in her talks, the American dream is over, it's ended. And I can see people kind of stunned by that uh, phrase. And I think he's after something similar here where he uses misguided and shattered and the illusion. And the, the, the communitarian dream that he's presenting, I find very interesting in terms of my own studies with indigenous people where dreaming is often central to the visionary experience or the sense of, of uh, a vitality of life. How do we go forward? And just to make a, the last point, d- dreams, the misguided dream seems to be heavily individuated or if not hyper-individual. It's my dream and I'm the one reflecting on it. But the communitarian dream, as he explores in the encyclical, is in dialogue. Mm-hmm. And among indigenous peoples, I find that's one of the most interesting dimensions of a dream. You tell them. You narrate them to family, to elders. And so you hear yourself and you get feedback. And I think as part of what Francis is exploring in this encyclical also, where are we going in this new dream? Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah. So when he's critiquing capitalism, he's also critiquing the larger worldview and the ethos that's part of that, the whole dream underlying that economic system, the selfishness, the egotism. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's kind of become a cliche in some circles to refer to this old quote from uh, a theorist, Frederick Jameson, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than imagine uh, the end of capitalism. Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear that Pope Francis doesn't have that failure of imagination, that he is imagining some kind of post-capitalist future, uh, and that he is imagining something after this closed world, after the egotism and the selfishness. And so he's proposing this kind of more open world, right? Uh, So what exactly is that looking like? What's this new dream, and what's it going to open up for us? Yeah, it's such a good point. Um, and of course, Thomas Berry had this sense that the old dream is over, we need a new story, and so on. And his was this dream of the earth for the flourishing of the whole earth community. And that notion um, then that we need a new vision is very much present in this uh, encyclical. And it's also saying that we have got to understand what is a common good? One of the reasons I study Confucianism for so many years is because they hold up the common good as absolutely central. The individual um, is trying to contribute to the whole society. So that sensibility um, is the, I think, the central affirmation of this encyclical. And I also want to say he's affirming two or three important movements. And that is, it has to do with war and life and death. And he's holding up life, the dignity of the human, the preciousness of life, um, in these particular ways. He is saying, remarkably, that a just war theory is no longer relevant in a world that has nuclear weapons and biological weapons. We can't uphold that anymore. That's revolutionary. And he goes on to say, we cannot support nuclear weapons, um, and that the amount of money in the trillions of dollars, as we know, for refurbishing and maintaining these weapons should be pushed towards, put into a fund for hunger, uh, a fund for relief of poverty and so on. So that's one of his most important, I think, affirmative signals. Um, And then he's also saying, if life is valuable, the death penalty is something that must be abolished. We know in this country, Sister Helen Prejean has been working on this for a long, long time. You know, since 1976, 75 countries around the world have abolished the death penalty. We're one of the few in the so-called developed world that still has one. So he's calling with mincing no words for the abolition of this, but it's all by way of affirming life and its preciousness and how we can cherish it. I'm intrigued, uh, Sam, by your observation about uh, the apocalypse and and capitalism and realizing the end of it. And I'm uh, reminded that uh, the sense of an end of things or the coming of the end is uh, at the heart of Christianity also. And there's something about uh, Francis in this encyclical also where he's realizing eschatology or realized eschatology, realization of a transformation of a new turn, not necessarily the end of the world, but the end of this and it turning to something else. And so his attention to the real is what uh, 
I find that find the deep allure in the encyclical itself. Speaking about at one point the um, the tears of things, and he he takes the phrase from Virgil and the Aeneid, and his sense of the tears of things he makes so vivid when he re represents the good the story of the Good Samaritan, and this other the stranger who gives to the person in need. And he's proposing that as a realization then of what it is that he's exploring, how we are both uh, ourselves and the other in dialogue. And so the realization of this new reality is a dialogic reality. And I think that's, that's very clear in his encyclical. And this uh, dialogue is truth and reconciliation. It's truth about the tears of things, and it's uh, uh, moving forward in this uh, regenerative recollection. Uh, that's what I'm feeling is realized. Mm -hmm. Nice, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, I love that phrase from Virgil. Isn't it? Yeah, and I'm wondering, you know, because, I mean, especially, this is a podcast for the Forum on Religion and Ecology. So the big question would be, when he's talking about the tears of things, where are the more than human things, right? Where are the other forms of life and land, air, and water, and the rest of the larger Earth community? Uh, where's ecology in this whole message? Right. Yeah. So it's a great question. And of course, this Laudato Si' issued five years ago. It was the cry of the Earth and the cry of the poor. And that phrase coming out of Leonardo's book from 1997, Leonardo Boff, great liberation theologian of Latin America, that is so central to what we feel is needed now, eco-justice, environmental justice. Mm. Um, and while that's in the background, it's not foregrounded in this encyclical, that threading through of ecology uh, and humans, people and planet. And we would have loved to see a little bit more weaving, frankly, of Laudato Si and Fratelli Tutti. But I think that's for us to do, isn't mm. it? You know, we have to do something. He's, he's offered <laughs> an amazing... dialogic Exactly, exactly. So I think, you know, that's, that's part of our great work, as Thomas Berry would say. But let me just um, conclude this important question by saying he did one of the most symbolic uh, actions, and that was of seven months in confinement in Vatican City because of uh, the COVID, he, he made his first trip outside of it to mm. sign this and elevate it yeah. in St. Francis's church and the tomb where he said a mass. So clearly, Francis is an inspiration to him. His name comes from that. And this uh, incredible saint uh, had that sense of speaking with birds, with animals, with word, with the wolves, and Giotto's paintings illustrate that. So that's for us, I think, to draw forth the background of St. Francis of Assisi. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I want to recall a, an article that Willis Jenkins did, and he titled it something like, Where is the voice of Mother Earth in this encyclical, Laudato Si? And it's a good art. It's an appreciative critique from Willis, so he's not to try to subvert the encyclical. But the the voice then, where are the voices uh, of biodiversity in 
in Laudato Si and then in this document also. But I feel that type of critique is, as we've just acknowledged, it's in the dialogue. The deeper critique that I would feel, and again, it's an appreciative critique, and there's no intention of, of subverting the document itself, but uh, there's a, a gap here or a lack of cosmological directness. There's in Laudato Si, and I feel the reverberation here, a strong sense of the uh, the Franciscan vision of the vestigia, the traces of the divine in creation. And so one um, recognizes that in, in Francis's vision. And then the vision of Aquinas, where literally the, uh, the divine and the creative act of the divine is the so central dynamic of every created reality. So it's a powerful cosmology, but uh, it's largely spatial, and it doesn't have that evolutionary sense of time. And I think Francis is himself groping towards implementing or bringing that cosmology into his work. So I feel that's also the work that all of us have to do, too, is to explore those stories in terms of these messages that we're receiving. Yeah, I would like to just make maybe one final comment along those lines to pick up John's point. Um, I'm on a Vatican working group uh, it's it's a discussion group, working group for post-COVID world uh, on ecology. And actually, one of the most interesting things to me has been to learn how important um, the sense of liturgy is becoming. That once we put these ideas into liturgy of ecology, of justice, of humans and nature together, I think we're going to have the basis for the transformation of consciousness and conscience. It'll be embedded, it will be sung, it will be liturgized and ritualized. And there's an amazing interest in this among the next generation um, in this group, this uh, Vatican working group. And the seasons of creation, you can look this up from all through the months of September that concludes on the Feast of St. Francis, October 4th, when this encyclical was released, is doing precisely that. And that's been going on for quite a few years now, celebrating the seasons of creation. Um, and hopefully it will be not just ecological, but evolutionary in due time. But thank you, Sam, so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing this. It's inspiring to get a sense of the many levels that this encyclical is addressing from liturgy to our political and economic institutions, to just our practice of everyday life, and to get a sense that the things that are missing are things that we can all contribute to piecing together as well. Uh, and that kind of constructive uh, criticism, right? That that's really welcome and there's a lot of room for that. So I appreciate that a lot. Yes, mm. yes, well, thank you. Well, I put, think uh, we'll have to have you back on at some point. I always like hearing from you, of course, especially when big events like this are happening. And I know there's so many other accounts of it, uh, but it's really uh, helpful to get your perspective, especially for this larger ecological and cosmological context uh, that's it, that it's situated around. Um, cool. So I'll go ahead and leave it there so that we don't just go on for hours, which is otherwise <laughs> impossible. Uh, so thank you so much, Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm. Thanks for being on. And uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in and watching or listening. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. So in the meantime, be well. Bye-bye. Thank you.